Welcome to the Yarn Barn. Welcome to the Yarn Barn. It's good to have you here. This is obviously Australian Dad's Network podcast. My name's Liam Sorrell. Today's episode features a conversation with myself and James Greenshields, a military veteran, husband, dad, and leader of a movement to impact lives. This episode delves deep into some heavy topics, including suicide and PTSD, so please be aware of this before listening or continuing on. If you do listen and feel triggered by this content, please seek some support, and obviously Lifeline is there on 13, 11, 14. During this episode, uh, we discuss some key topics, including the three givens of life, finding our sole purpose, the burden of having a big heart, feeling pain to its extreme edges even though it can be very uncomfortable and uh, the impact of having a tribe and a community that includes significant leaders and elders to support you on your journey. Uh, James has an impressive background and his work has impacted a ton of lives and will continue to do so and you will get that passion and energy from him in this episode, I can guarantee you that. You can learn more about him on his website at jamesgreenshields.com so for now, buckle up for an enlightening, enlightening and thought-provoking conversation. Here we go, In the Yarn Barn with James. Hey, James, uh, thanks for joining us, mate. Really appreciate uh, your patience, firstly. So obviously, all of the, uh, the effort that we put into getting this recorded uh, won't go to air because <laughs> um, we couldn't record it because the first F first effort we put in didn't work but you know i think actually now thinking of it and just before i jump over to you is you know i think that's part of um you know this possibly come up as part of the conversation around you know just persevering and resilience and i think some of these themes that we even though they're on a very 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 minor scale to some of the stuff that you've uh you've been through in, in your journey um you know i think they're good little lessons uh, for us just to keep sticking through even when things get a bit it might seem a bit easier to to just move away and 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 disregard it or, or and not push through. So, um, little lessons from <laughs> from virtual hiccups. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks thanks for sticking around uh, with me. Thanks for being patient and uh, and I appreciate uh, you jumping on and having a chat with us inside the yarn barn. And uh, I see you you've got your your dad uh, mug there as well, um, which is which is pretty cool. I noticed that. I'm very observant. Um, you are. Thanks. And uh keep calm and call dad. That's the that's the cup there. That's a Father's Day present from a few years ago. Yeah, nice. So um yeah, well let's just start with you. I can I could do an intro, but I think it's better to come from the person who's sitting on the other side of the uh the screen from me. Uh just give us the, the thirty thousand foot view of, of James Greenshields. Deepest creepers. Um yeah, grew up very conservative background, father of an Anglican priest, a Vietnam veteran, a chaplain to the army, police, country fire authority. Um, and the army, and uh, he's also just a, a regular priest as well, but he never left the land, so to speak. Um, and mum, school teacher to a Roman Catholic uh college for 36 years. She didn't just teach, um, you know, daughters of mothers, she taught granddaughters of, of grandmothers. And by that stage, mum decided she'd been in the one place for too long. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and grew up on a farm that was south of the Pakapunyal military training area, the largest military training area in, in Victoria. 
Uh, there's a photo in mum's house of me standing there at four with um, personnel carriers coming in the back paddock to park up behind the shearing shed. And they're from an organisation called B Squadron 2nd Cavalry Regiment. The next photo is 30 years later of me leading B Squadron 2nd Cavalry Regiment into Iraq for its first wartime deployment. Wow. Um, yeah, I, was, I grew up around the military, some incredible people coming into the house. Dad was a, a man of many talents. He was a spiritual portal for so many who didn't actually realise what he was. They just knew that if they went and sought counsel with my father that um, they'd find solace, they'd find some form of peace. Um, and he, he was incredible in diabolical situations. However, if um, at the age of 16 I didn't want to do the farm work or the cattle work his way in there, in the cattle yards, give me two minutes, I'd press every button, he'd fly off in a foot of rage and wouldn't see him for the rest of the day. Good, because I did it my way and I'm just trying to prove myself. And um, so a lot of a lot of my early interactions with my father were me, like, he was my love role model, but he was not my anger, sadness, fear, shame or guilt role model. Um, and that was because of his his traumas from, from his life, not just Vietnam, what he saw, but overall his life. Um, and so I grew up as a young man trying to uh, gain his approval, gain his love, not realising that he was giving it to me all the time. Uh, and a lot of that was because of the journey of not understanding actually what love was um, and that need, that constant need to prove myself uh, and, and fighting against being a coward, uh, which led me to charge down two-ton bulls in the face um, in the cattle yards and Dad just like jaw dropping the floor and just shaking his head going, can I show you another way? And I said, yeah, but was it done? He's going, yeah, you, you're alive, but maybe not next time. And I said, but it, the, the job was done. And, you know, Dad passed 20 years ago. Um, and when he passed, we had become best friends again. By the age of 14, I needed to go to boarding school, though, because I couldn't be in his presence without us flying off the handle. And realistically, I grew up in a loving household, though. You know, that people would lo love to come to our place, love to come to the farm and everything. So... To say that I had a traumatic childhood, bullshit. I had a great childhood. Um, I had a lot of freedom on the farm. I'd just go wandering. Um, but there was a lot of stuff inside, genetically, through my bloodlines, um, but also soul purpose that came to to really um, make a crescendo. So 17 years in the military after boarding school, um, therefore you could really call me an institutionalised moron <laughs> because I basically had every conservative uh, paradigm upon me until realistically the age of 33. Um, and by 33, I was a major in the military, uh, given the honour of leading Australian troops into to a combat zone. Um, we were combat team Eagle as part of a, a thing called Operational um, Battle Group West, Overwatch Group West or something. Um, an incredible experience, yeah, over 100 soldiers. Um, they, they were mine within my combat team, but every mission we rolled on, we'd, we'd amplify that, you know, at times 250 people. I learned an incredible amount about myself. I had a thirst for it. I had a real desire, real hunger or mastery of it. I was good at it. Um, I had a real passion for my people, my men. You didn't stuff with my men because I was exceedingly protective and I didn't realise there was a lot of subconscious archetypes, including the rescuer that was, was um, paramount in that. I like to say I went to war a hero in the archetype and I didn't come back a warrior. Um, I got blooded, but my warriorship didn't actually transmute uh, until later on in, in life when I crashed after coming back with post-traumatic stress. Yeah, I was hit by a roadside bomb over in Iraq. Quite a few other things happened. Um, but realistically, the post-traumatic stress came because of a values incongruence where because I was part of the leadership team in Iraq, 
we were privy to um, certain aspects of the mission that we worked out were uh, not necessarily what we'd been told upon deployment um, and we were in a war zone and we weren't going home. Uh, and we had a job, well, we had to find a job to do. Realistically, we had to find a job to do. And so that was a real big test in my own fortitude, resilience, and leadership. Um, but coming home, I just really collapsed because uh, the military was everything to me as a young person. It was, and for, archetypally for me, the military represents the penultimate aspect of the human to protect those that one loves in the in the mastery of arms, in the mastery of the skill set. And so it, it speaks professionalism, it speaks honour, virtue, integrity, power, all these things, but done for being of service. And um, what I was witnessing in the military is there was a, an incongruence to that. There was a violation of that, which that's about me, not about the military, and so it was a choice. And 12 years ago now, funnily enough, I chose to get out when I was in the height of post-traumatic stress. Um, and so I went suicidal and depressed, um, sat on the couch, was going to take my own life. But a story about dad came to me where he said, um, one day feeding the cattle, there's my God, sweeping a hand across the bush. Now to an ignorant eight-year-old who didn't understand spirituality, uh, I didn't understand what he meant. But on that day, I realized what he actually meant to me because he said to me, you've got to go and find your own. And I realized my job wasn't done. I hadn't found my own and I needed to be lost, so damn lost where all the fabric of life collapsed. Um, and I got out of the military ex like excelling. I was a high-functioning high, high functioning, um, trauma depressive case. So they actually wanted me to stay in and, and go on the up and up. If I had it done that, I'd be looking for a second or a third wife by now. Um, and I liked the one I got. <laughs> so um, there was a life choice. Uh, and it was a great one because I wouldn't have recovered from post-traumatic stress if I had a stadium because the tribe will only allow you to heal as far as the tribe's capable or willing to. And my father needed to die for me to heal because I would have looked to him for guardianship, but you can only help a person heal to the level you've healed yourself. And he passed me a gauntlet in on pond death, which was uh, a gauntlet of trauma and, and fractured soul. And he said, it's now your job to heal this. So I've gone on to do an incredible amount of work into myself to become, you know, I haven't had a relapse of post-traumatic stress. I, I don't even go through post-traumatic growth anymore. I mean, it's it's just something that happened to me. I don't identify myself with it anymore. Um, the only reason why I remember it so much is people ask me to tell the story every now and then. Um, and I've realized, you know, who I am deeply by connecting to spirit, connecting to land, connecting to, to my genealogy, my bloodline, but even bigger than that, realizing that I, I aren't that they're, the, they're part of my makeup, they're an integral part of my makeup, but I'm something bigger than that. And so this exploration, um, and I have a thirst for exploration on that type of bloke, um, and that's, that's served me really, really well on the, in the dark side. Um, but that that search for exploration really fuels my fire. So, yeah, now that's been running a charity for the last two or five years. We've just let go of the charitable status, and we, just because the the vehicle didn't serve the purpose anymore. Um, I don't need people to tell me how to do my job. Uh, I know how to help people, and I won't be constrained by uh, people's belief cycles about what's needed when I'm I'm around a campfire, say with a bunch of men, as I will be next week. 
um, they, they need to go where they need to go and their souls will tell me where they need to go. And I have the honour of being capable of actually witnessing them do that. Um, I've learned that one heals oneself. Like I don't heal anyone. I'm just there chaperoning them through this process, um, amplifying the skills that I've learned, continually working at refining a mastery of those skills. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I've really learned is about what, what power this heart has uh, within me. I'm a Leo. Um, uh, and you know, I do, I have to, I've had to own how big my heart is and it, I had to walk through the arrogance and the narcissistic gateway to, to be able to own it with humility, um, and honor. Um, and I'm so grateful about my heart and how big it is and what it allows me to connect to, particularly my daughters, my wife, people I love so much. And the only time I'll get emotional about a story out of Iraq is when I talk about my soldiers. Because they were, they are amazing people, and they what they did back then was truly amazing. So I know that was um, probably longer than expected. Thirty thousand foot foot look at me, but that's that's probably you know I, we don't talk about resilience anymore um, around here. We don't work in resilience. We've gone beyond that because resilience has become a an idolised hero upon itself, um, misunderstood concept. Because you need an adversary for resilience. But what happens when you transcend the need for an adversary and you grow not from fear and resistance but from love um, and you get drawn, which is part of the understanding of the deep, dark feminine who draws uh, draws a man out of the boat from the conscious light down into the to the underworld, to the uh, to the darkness, to where, where his heart actually needs to be reborn from. He needs to die in that moment. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's, that's that's what my heart's been given to me. Awesome. That's, a, that's one of the best introductions to... Uh to a podcast episode that I've uh, that I've been involved with. So I appreciate you sharing that from the start. And um, you may have seen me um, furiously scribbling uh, notes down because, and I'm, this is, again, one of the, the beauties of being able to record conversations like this is that I can go back and listen to them as many times as needed because there's so much in there. And um, if... I think I'm just gonna. There's there's one one sort of part of that process that you you talked about there that I think I, I just wanted to start on because I think it's important. Is that um, you mentioned? Uh, you know, we have to go to the, the edges of our pain essentially to be able to. We can't sort of tiptoe around some of the things that have happened in our past. We can't tiptoe around how we're feeling right now, and just um, you know, I think a lot of us, um, a, a lot of men in particular will um will mask some of the pain or um you know use obviously unhelpful coping mechanisms that have uh, as a result of a whole range of different um history but also just um friendship groups and then the circles that they're involved with, in that environment that's that's surrounding them um you know so how how do you and through your experience obviously you know you've gone into some of the depths of um you know the darkest pains that you know people can can encounter how do you embrace that like how does how do you encourage guys or how do you support guys through embracing that level of pain so that they can get to the edges of it, feel it, understand what it's for and how it's there to serve them, and then move beyond that? That's an epic question. Seriously, that is an epic question. Thanks. The um the answer starts with like, I, I, we for ten years I ran a rite of passage program for young people, a youth leadership program based um, on old rites of passage from around the globe. And I'd often get asked to go first into a school and talk to them. And I love talking to about year 11s, something about that age group. And uh, 250 people, say, were in an auditorium one day and the teachers were there. And I'd ask them, so leadership, give me it. 
What are the maxims? What are the big statements you've heard? First one, always lead by example. And I say, you know what? Lead by example is fucking bullshit. And you can imagine what a bunch of, this one was Nudgy College in um, in Brisbane, which is an old boys classic school. So you can imagine what the audience did, like recoiled. And the young men just go, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. Who swore? And, and it's like, I do that deliberately because I want to shock them into a, a different thought pattern. I want to wake them up. And the reason why I said it is because I then went on and said, how many times have you seen your parents tell you to do one thing and do another thing? Everyone raises their hand. I said, right. And I knew I had teachers in the room and I wanted to put a shot across their bow. I said, who's seen a teacher do exactly the same? Say one thing, do another. Every hand goes up. Not only that, they're looking around to find out where the teachers are. And some of the teachers are trying to just like become invisible, which is great because they've been called. And therein lies the thing. Like the maxim's true, but the question I ask them is don't worry about lead by example. What example are you leading by? And as a father, I know that my job for a 17 year old daughter and a 14, going on 15 year old daughter, I've got two daughters, is to be an example. But there's an old adage which says the father sits at the dinner table and he knows he must get up and go outside and go beyond to heal the wound. And he sits there with the choice, and one father will get up and leave and go and do the journey. And in doing the journey, he knows that he's leaving the dinner table and leaving his family, but he's doing it for the grander, grander reason. Whereas there's another father who stays at the dinner table and sits there and the wound is passed to the next generation. I'm the, I have to be the former. It's just who I am. It's my makeup. I can't deny that anymore. Um, and so my example to my daughters who one of one of the biggest leadership like roles that I have is being a father, but it's also one can't lead if one can't follow. So one must understand followership before one understands leadership. And so I allow myself to be led by my daughters, but I I allow myself to be led by my wife. But at the same time, I'm not meek. I'm not, she doesn't wear the buddy pants in the relationship. There's a mutual um, consenting relationship, you know, and a mutual decision-making relationship. It wasn't when I was in trauma, she wore the pants. She was in the masculine. She had to be because I was so deeply lost in the undying world um, deep below that someone had to make it. So I'd say all this because the the biggest answer to your question is to be the example. And so what I'll do is, you know, around my campfire, I'll set the tone by sharing, especially if I have people that I haven't met before. It's like, cool, share. And anything you say, anything I say, you can use. I don't. I don't have a Chatham House rules. It used to be called in the military. I don't know if you call it that, but you know, a, a, a sacred circle. Nothing goes outside the circle. I hold the sacred circle, and nothing you say will go outside this circle. But I, I actually am above that rule. If you wish to use my story, you use my story. I, all I ask is you respect the story. That's all I ask. Um, and in in doing that, what I found is the level of heart connection to men who, men and when I work with men and women, but they're just talking about men for the moment. Um, they some of them get scared because the level of openness. I don't ask anyone to be vulnerable because as soon as I ask someone to be vulnerable, what happens in the subconscious mind gets defensive. So I ask them to be open. The next question is, well, how do I be open? I said, awesome, great question. Tell me about yourself. And so I'll listen. And then I'll ask another question. And I'll ask a second, third level question. I was doing a leadership workshop for an organization yesterday. And they, I was talking about questions. One of the leader's powerful, most powerful tool is the question followed by silence. Um, and so I asked a question of this young, this young guy. 
how are you going? He says, yeah, good. I said, what does good mean? Because good is the most nondescript word in the English language besides interesting. <laughs> just think about it. And so, and, and then I turned to the forum. I said, so how many of you would have just accepted good as the answer? Pretty much most people. So anyway, we got talking and I find out, well, he hadn't seen his wife for a couple of days. So he's good. But if this continues, he's not going to be good. So I'm, I'm understanding more about him. And I, did anyone know that? No one knew that because our conversation stopped the shallow. And so I'll, I, I won't be intrusive, but I will be deep. And there will be this invitation to come with. And I've been in dark spaces. I was trained for combat, but the, the scariest stuff I've done is when I've gone inside. I wasn't trained for that. And I wasn't trained to realise that some of the dark stuff that was inside was really, really tenacious um, and caused, I didn't realise it existed, but then when I saw how it expressed itself in the outside world and the behaviours that I'd actually wrapped up and unconsciously got involved in and then the pain that that actually put, that caused on people, particularly those I loved, I went, holy shit. And then you can imagine shame and guilt comes in. So, you know, case in point, Penelope, Penelope, um, who's my youngest daughter, when she was four, I'd moved through post-traumatic stress by this this time. But whenever I raised my voice to instill a boundary, she would run to the bedroom, go into the fetal position and rock. And when I very quickly worked out, she was going back to being in utero because when Kirsty was pregnant with Penelope, I was at the height of my post-traumatic stress. And I was really angry, but I didn't know what anger was because I just thought it was natural and normal. And, but I was also emotionally illiterate. So she was used to finding solace next to her mother's heartbeat in the fetal position. Now, you can probably imagine, mate, that, that as soon as I figured this out, how do you reckon I felt? How would you feel? Yeah, pretty average. Very average, exceedingly average. So that's the first thing I had to work out was, oh, hold on, right now I'm feeling shame and I'm feeling guilt because I understand why this is occurring. But if I hold on to the shame and the guilt right now because of the story, then what's going to happen? I'm going to be no help to my daughter whatsoever. So I need to work on the shame and guilt, release that, forgive myself, and then come to where my daughter is. Now, and understanding the journey in the last four years, what I'd worked out was that I'd actually become very adept at understanding anger, realizing the energy, knowing how to release it, express it, transmute it. So I was able to use that skill set to assist my daughter evolve in the space of probably three months it took us to evolve her out of that space and like funnily enough when she was seven and she'd been pissing her mother off a little bit um and, she, and, and i've been working with kirst about it and you know we've just been letting it go letting it not letting it go holding the boundary but when i say letting it go it's like not going head on at it because we wanted her to take responsibility so instill the boundary but she for me to help her with it i couldn't help her with it but she's got to ask. And so finally, after about three weeks, she comes to me. She's a 70-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed young girl and goes, Dad, can I have some help with my anger? And I said, yes, gorgeous, of course. And we're walking over the shed to do an anger session together. And I thought, hold on a minute. Like, the emotional literacy of this seven-year-old is beyond most buddy seven-year-olds. If we did a video of that, this, like, it could probably help a lot of people. So I asked her, I said, would you mind us doing some video about this? We won't, we won't like, film you, you getting angry, but just before and after, would you mind? And she says, no, no. So we did this video and last count, I think it'd been seen by 170,000 people around the globe. And that was seven years ago. And I still get messages randomly from people, particularly in the Netherlands or Norway for some reason. Um, and they just say, can you please thank, I called her Pen Pen because it's my nickname for her, Pen Pen on the, about that video. It just was really, really liberating to see her actually go through it. And I, her her courage to actually be seen gave a gift to so many 
And that came because I had the courage to actually own my stuff, do something about it, upskill myself with this new inf- information so that I was there for, there for my family. That's, that's extremely incredible. And, um, you know, when you, were, when you were talking about that with, uh, with your daughter and her, and, and her coming to you and asking for help in regards to anger is like I had, I had extremely, um, I suppose, excited. I was extremely excited and, and, uh, and I suppose, you know, I was feeling in your, I imagine some of the feelings that you were going through at that time is, is feeling what, well, you know, probably excited and, but also proud of, you know, where you had been, but also of where you are, but also of where, where she has come from as well. Um, and, you know, I just think of, you know, how many, how many people are out there now as adults that, are that can't do that, that can't or haven't figured out how uh, empowering it would be to be able to go and ask somebody for some help. And instead of that, living with the pain for so long at that, at that level that is, um, you know, it is, it, it hurts. And, you know, and, and so, you know, one of the things that I'm doing now is, is um, I left my full-time job just uh, at the start of this year to, to work closely with our community in, in the mental health space. And because there's a big gap here and, you know, and I think that, you know, I see so many people that are, that are just at that edge of just going, I need, I know I need to do something, but mm. I don't know what that is. I don't know where that I can find that. And I don't know how and who, and all these, these questions. And it becomes almost another level of stress and frustration and shame that they can't ask the questions. And, you know, it's it's a big struggle, but uh, you know, I think that that's I don't know about the Netherlands and why <laughs> and why they stand out in this in this space, but you know, I I imagine probably they're they're more comfortable to be able to say thank you. And I think that's probably another probably another story as well to say thanks for sharing. But you know, there's uh, I think there's there's so many people that would get value out of seeing that video, and I'm going to make sure that we link it inside of our community as well, um, because it's if a seven year old can do it. You know, we can we can all do it, and we can all put some some of that stuff aside and 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 ask the questions. It's uh, well, it's a really big point you make. Like, interestingly enough, my message speaks more to women than it does to men. Yet, I do more work on average with men than I do with women. Um, even you know, in corporate leadership stuff that I do for organisations and and sporting clubs, etc. It's like um, most of still the majority of people there are, are men. But if you do a personal development workshop. Like it's, when I got out of the military, I spent three years working with an organisation going around Australia and it was a three-day personal development workshop. We ran pretty much every second weekend and um, it, on average it was 80% women in the crowd. But uh, the point is like, and I was, t- I was actually talking to, I, was, I, I, um, I, I tuned into, I was asked to speak last night at a men's group over in New Zealand virtually. I, I got zoomed in uh, and we were actually talking about this this specific thing. There is actually so much help available, uh, yet the and a lot of people will say the issue is money and resources. It's not money and resources at all. There's a number of competing factors. Firstly, um, the man's a man's ego is quite strong, and pride is actually a very low vibrating emotion because it's about attachment. And one of the issues with attachment is 
that their identity will be attached to something. And one of the biggest things that's identified is, is the need to be self-sufficient. And when I say self-sufficient, I'm not talking a beautiful, organic, um, sovereign being who's one with nature, one with everything, and just stands on his own two feet in a beautiful, balanced way. I'm talking about a person who's dogmatically unable to receive, unable to actually allow himself to open up to receive support. And I don't know if you ever saw the show Man Up by Gus Wallen. Um, he did a oh, uh, series of yeah, four. went in with schools and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yep. Um, well, I was, I was speaking at the same event he was, and he had his psychological support team out of Griffith University speak as well. And what they found was 64% of men um, were, had already, who were taking their own life had already put their hand up. Now, I'm a big one to question statistics. Like I asked the second, third level questions when statistics have been asked. But the point about that is a number, it was twofold. Firstly, a lot of men don't find the, the help that resonates with them first time around. And so they stop. And well, you know, I'll often get someone who's been through the psychiatric approach, the psychological, they've gone to counselors, and they'll turn up like exhausted on my doorstep. And I'll know that literally, they're looking at me as their last hope. I don't know how many blokes turn up to my campfire with a, a boot already packed. And that is just to go away from their family, but actually never come back like in life. And it's really empowering when they actually around the campfire and they admit, hey, listen, I came with my boot packed. Because they're, they're, they're actually allowing themselves to drop deep down into where they are. They're owning where they are and we can build it from there. But um, the the point there is that, that I keep saying to people, you know, if – it's like a podcast. You, you don't listen to a podcast you don't like. You listen to a podcast that you get something from. But you might have to, to go through a whole suite of different podcasts to find that. So, you know, find someone that you resonate with and know, like the biomedical approach has flaws. It has deep flaws. And if you go down that, that approach, you, you have to realise the ramifications. It's, it's not insurmountable and it works for some people. But for a lot of people, it doesn't work. And just because it doesn't work doesn't mean to say you're broken. Matter of fact, no one's broken. This is the whole wrong, this is the whole misnomer about the paradigm about mental health. 80% of mental health issues are actually personal leadership issues. We've just never been taught it this way. And we've been conditioned to believe mental health is um, a disease that infects you. It's not. It's the whole mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual byproduct of being out of balance. So when I, at a subconscious level, listen to the words I use because they're really, really calculated. At a subconscious level, I chose to develop post-traumatic stress upon returning home from Iraq. Now, I chose that at a subconscious level, not a conscious level. It wasn't a conscious thought going, yeah, give me a beer and give me post-traumatic stress. It's all good. No, it wasn't like that. It was at a subconscious level because I knew that my path in life was going way left. And my path in life was going on to become a general. That's the way the military had me set up. That's the way I thought I was meant to be set up. That's the way I was charging, hard charging. I didn't realize that's what, not what I was meant to be doing because I just thought that that's what society told me to do. That's all the, the measures of success, which are right, aren't they? No, they weren't my measures of success because I'd never actually had the ability to answer my own true question. Who am I and what do I truly want? Therefore, what is success to me? And until I sat and answered those questions, then I could go, whoa, I was going way off track. I didn't even see that. So the, the, the point about this, this is that I was trying to be a ballerina doing a pirouette for way too long. And I've done a bit of yoga in my life. 
But I give you the big tip to see me doing a bit of ballet while I'm trying to do a pirouette. It's a, it's a funny experience. And I, of course, I'm going to fall over in exhaustion. And that's what we do with any form of adverse mental condition. Matter of fact, First Nation people say adverse mental conditions are a spiritual awakening waiting to happen. In whatever spiritual context you use, it does not matter. You could be a deep Christian. Awesome. Use your, your bedrock and understand. Get really deep on Christianity if you're going to do it. I recommend you go, you go far deeper than just going to church on, at 9.30 on Sunday because you ain't going to hit what you've got. You've got to find in that in that modality to understand spirit. It is rich. It is really rich. I had an Anglican father, but I'm, I'll tell you what, I know so much more about Christianity now than I ever did as, as a son of a preacher man. And, and there is so much deep in the esoteric or the internal, the church is called the Church of John as opposed to the external esoteric, or exoteric Church of Peter. But the Church of John teaches so much about the unification of the soul. And... A one must say to be to sanctify before illumination. In other words, cleanse, purify before I become illuminated. For these things pop into my mind. So there's this deep richness to to that Buddhism. It's such a beautiful middle path. Taoism teaches an incredible place of oneness. There's so much, so many different modalities to understand from it, and that's just a like religious context. And we go spirituality, where we go beyond that architecture that someone else has given to us through a, a lifetime, which has then been synthesized by a disciple and put into a, a series of constructs for people to follow. And we go into that time with well, Luther with the Protestant Reformation, giving you and saying, "Yours, you need God and the Bible." So what he's basically saying is, you can find the divine, great spirit in um, the indigenous language, and you can find it yourself. And the problem is a lot of people didn't know how to read the Bible, so probably set them up shit creek, but, you know, without a paddle. But the, the whole point is that there is so much to these journeys into the darkness, and this is the thing. Darkness is known as evil. That's bullshit. It's not. Darkness is, dark. darkness is where chaos resides. Chaos is not evil. You formed from chaos. In the womb, you were in darkness, and you formed from chaos. And that's how you morphed into life, where structure came. And structure is the, the masculine principle. Feminine is the dissolving, the, the fluidity, the, the dark, beautiful, creative, chaotic energies, whereas the masculine takes that, seeds that, impregnates that, and then form comes. So this dark night of the soul is so many people ha are having right now because, yes, adverse mental condition rates are going through the roof, and so are a number of psychologists and psychiatrists and counsellors on the streets. Yeah, and they're just going together like this. So in other words, we're, it's not a money or a resource issue. It's a paradigm issue. You're not broken is the first thing to understand. You are a beautiful being which has a reason to be on the planet or you wouldn't be here. But it's my job to find my reason. So dad says, there's your God, there's my God, but you got to go and find your own. He's saying to me, James, stand up. Stop sitting on the couch. Stop feeling bad, like sorry for yourself. You've got everything it takes. I know you don't understand that right now, but just take a step. And so, yeah, my my... The fourth best day of my life has been hit by a roadside bond. Fourth best, hands down. Because I needed the kick in the ball sack to wake up to my priorities in life and realise I was going like that. Third best night of my life, I was bathing my two-year-old daughter, Abigail, who's now 17. And we're having fun. And back then, that didn't really happen that much because my family were pretty much walking on eggshells because it was a, like a pressure cooker in the house. And that was me. Anyway, Kirsty yells out dinner time. And I said to Abs, can you just put the toys in the basket? 
She did what any two-year-old having fun with dad would do in that moment, completely disregard dad's instructions. Man, I went from zero to a thousand degrees Celsius like that. I had to do everything just to put the basket down and leave the room and walk past Kirsty before I did something I truly regret. And I walked past and I said, you go and deal with that fucking kid. I can't. Now, interestingly enough, that night I went and straight away, I went and stood in front of the mirror and I looked at myself and I said, dude, who the hell are you? You're not a husband. You're not a father. You're not a man. You're nothing. You are seriously, you can take bullets and you can take bombs. You can't even bath your own two-year-old daughter. And that was the biggest wake-up call because when I turned around from that mirror experience there and the silhouetted on the door was Kirsty waiting for the next chat, which was, I can't keep doing this. Like, we either get your help or I'm taking the girls and I'm leaving. And I said, listen, I don't actually know. I, I, I don't know what's wrong. I, I can't fix it. And that was one of my biggest issues. I was a fix-it type guy. Bring me the problem. I was a, you know, it was a combat commander. I was thinking at 60 kilometers an hour like this. Lots of stuff going bing, 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 bing. And I was good. Yeah. But I'm inside and it's all going bing, 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 bing. And like I'm I'm like a deer in spotlights. I've got no idea. And every step, every step I take seems to just bring turbulence to the world, more turmoil. And so here I am just completely weighed down by this experience and and not seeing truth, not seeing that, that the only reason why this was happening was because everything that I believed in life needed to, to cascade upon itself to collapse because it wasn't who I was. It's who I believed everyone else wanted me to be. And I needed external validation and all that for so long. It was who I was, wasn't it? Until I had this moment in time where everything collapses. And Kirsty puts it all on the table for me. And she said this word. She said, I will be there and I will support you as long as you get help. If not, I'll love you to my dying day, but I won't be here. And I said, that my commitment to, to us, gorgeous, is that I will keep making a step. I'll keep stepping, but I can't guarantee that with the direction of that step. And sure enough, now sometimes I'd have a step forward and then 10 step backwards. And I actually, it was after I, I put my hand up that I went suicidal because I started to realize what I'd done. And that weight of shame and guilt got heavier and heavier and heavier. And it got to the point where I just went, I, I just, I'm bringing too much pain. But again, that seed of my father showed me the light, showed me the door. And then I realized also that I was skilled enough to actually deal with this stuff by this stage. And so I went through the process. Shame and guilt became my friend. Um, they were indicators to where the, the dragons lay within the, the caves and the caves became my became my battlefields and stomping grounds for a long time until I lassoed my dragon. And now, holy cow, like the passion and the, the power I feel because of the experience is just next level. Can't explain it. It's amazing how one, one word or one sentence at one particular part of life that at that point, you know, when you were was eight years old, when your dad mentioned mm. that this is my god and you know at, at that one particular point like you said this didn't it's just just words but how impactful that uh can be and you know if if i think there's a there's a whoever's listening to this uh, it's probably like me going all right i just need to now find that what when was that pivotal moment <laughs> before things get really really bad let me let me jot down all the words and all the phrases that people i admire have said when i was a kid um because i can i might might be able to detour around some of the the traumatic moments but i don't i don't that's not the purpose of them i suppose this you know we're looking to um you know those things will come to us when it's the right time and you know and i think a lot of these experiences that we all go through um are there for us and and I think that's the other thing too is a lot of people think these are happening to us, 
instantly mm. for us. And so, mm. you know, I, so I really think it's um, what you're doing is so impactful because, you know, you've gone through that that that, that depth of of pain and suffering uh, and turned it into, uh, even though there was there was so many different elements that were saying, um, just you know, stop. Um, and however, you 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 converted those into this is all for me. This is all for a purpose. This is all for something bigger than me. Um, and you know, one of the things you mentioned uh, at the start was that you've got a big heart. And you know, so a, a question that's been sort of sitting with me since you've been talking is, um, is that a burden as well? Has been. Yeah. Yeah, it has been. Um, the burden came when I didn't, I didn't fully understand it, uh, and I would use it for the satisfaction, the, the satisfaction of those external to me. So I'd be in service, and being in service, I would weigh my shoulders full of responsibility to make sure I got it right because I had a, the issue with um, uh, with perfectionism is the shadow side of perfectionism is judgment, and I had I have a, a deep um, desire for mastery um, and mastery is the balanced perfectionist who does so um, calculatedly consciously but I was unconscious and I didn't understand any of the stuff that I, I now know um, and I was a perfectionist who had an extreme self-judgment so nothing I could do for the people that I love was right and some stuff and ha- stuff happened in my family when I was younger and and I didn't know about it but I felt it and it was to do with my sister, and I felt that I couldn't protect my sister. Um, and that then flowed onto a decision that I made at a subconscious level about myself and my relationship with women, and which meant that, you know, the, the the beautiful women in my life would always suffer pain, and that pain would be because of me and my inadequacies. And uh, it wasn't until I, um, I dug that up after an experience in 2016 and, and, and really, really pulled it up. And I, I saw and I went back to my father and the example I saw from my father and then the decision that I made about that example. There's a lot of people forget inner child stuff. And a lot of people think that we, when we do inner child stuff, we just blame our parents. It's actually our parents are just, I think you were leading to this before, Liam, but they're the situation and circumstance and event of people that come into our life to assist us on the life journey. They just happen to be really, really close to us. And so we see them so often and so so much. And, yes, there is a lot that flows through the bloodline. North American Indians will make a decision in this moment thinking about seven generations into the future because they know it goes into that fast. And, and epigenetics is demonstrating also the um, the DNA correlation between um, trauma and, and emotional wounding, et cetera, too. So we know it comes through the the, the, um, the bloodline, but but it's not just that because um, our, our um, genetics can actually be turned on and off like light switches too that are very much environmentally conditioned. So it's not nature versus nurture, but it's a mixture of both. And so when I, when I looked at my father, he was an incredible individual who was always out helping people. So I actually developed an absent father syndrome. Why? My father loved me, you know, but I did develop an absent father syndrome because I'd often wake up in the morning, dad wasn't there. Why? He was at a bloody road accident, putting bodies in body bags and then being with the people that had experienced the cleanup of that, the police and emergency services and, and being there for them, you know, what an amazing man, but here I am, a young man wanting to prove himself to my father. There's no father around for me to prove to. So I had this constant need for this external validation and recognition. And then I went into the military for crying out loud. The military, you know, it's an epic environment to to be there for external recognition and validation. Just look at the rank of the medals, you know, coming up on Anzac Day. So 
it's right in our face. But when I was able to turn that around and begin self-acknowledgement and self-measuring and a grounded sense of self-confidence laced with and, and embedded in by humility, the, et- the etymology or the genesis of the word humility comes from the Latin humus, which means ground, which is all about a grounding energy. So until I could do that, my, my big beating heart got into a lot of trouble and I'd I didn't understand why I'd try and help and it'd be thrown back in my face. Well, did I actually ask if they wanted help in the first place? Or was I projecting my own belief that I haven't and I had a need to be needed? Was I projecting that onto them so that then exacerbated their situation and they just threw it back in my face? And then what did I do? I, I transferred that into a decision about myself, which was, there you go, I'm inadequate. I can't help these people. No one wants my help. Why don't they want my help? I'm bad. I'm just all spiral down. Until realizing that, cool, the first thing to do if you want to help someone is to ask them, do they actually want help? Such a simple question and understanding. But I've, I've sat with people, you know, on hillsides and I've gone, dude, so you're thinking about putting a 12-gauge through your heart? Yep. So you've got to choose life or death, my brother. Now, let's just roll this out. If you kill yourself, then cool, I'll come to the funeral. And yep, your son and your daughter will be there. Your ex-wife will be there. Yep, she'll be feeling varying things. Mum and dad will be there as well. And that's what's going to happen. And no, man, I can't help you. I'll go to your funeral. There's nothing I can do. You'll kill yourself. There's nothing I can do for you. If you choose life, I'll stand by you. I'll be there with you. I, I understand from my own experience how it is to, to be in this choice point. I don't know your exact situation because you're an individual going through your own situation. But what I can tell you is that after being there, I'm no longer there and my life is amazing and I will walk with you on that path. I can't help you. I can't, I can't do it for you and it's not my job. And when you pull away from me in shame and guilt, I will sit there and I will not talk to you until you reach back out to me. But I will always have my phone open to you. I will always be there when you need me. And there's there's beauty to that. And I don't know how many mates of mine, I could, a few mates from Iraq who knew know what I've done and, and what I do for the last, you know, 12 years. Um, a couple of them have taken their life in recent times. And how I grieve. I'm a really good griever right now because lots of men I know, lots of people I know have taken their own life. And it's not my job to save anyone. It's my job to have a heart that can be there for them if they choose the other path. and. That's why it took me a long time to be able to to openly say I've never had a relapse of post-traumatic stress. doesn't mean to say I haven't had black days, but I know what the black day is about. I actually salivate a black day now because I know I'm actually going through a creative process. Um, but what it, it took me a long time to be able to stand in joy in front of a crowd of pain to people because I felt guilty and ashamed until I realized, well, they're feeling crap. They're feeling a lot of guilt and shame. So why am I standing here just lamenting in their own wounds. Why am I in that? They don't need that right now. Someone in anger does not need to be met by anger. They need to be met by compassion and understanding because they need to be heard. Anger is about voicing. It's about moving energy. Someone in sadness doesn't need someone else to be just crying with. They just need an open heart. They need comfort. They need reassurance. Someone in fear doesn't need another scared mongrel. Matter of fact, that's a great bloody recipe for disaster. Just look at the last three years for crying out loud. You know, it, what we need is in that moment, you need confidence and surety. You need the rock. You need the balance. Yeah? And that's that's what I've realized. Being big-hearted actually is the, the call to do. It's uh, 
so it's 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 definitely not a burden. It's something that has been um, has uh, you've been called to do, like you say, which is which is you know for for people who have well, I mean, for me in particular, that sometimes ha- or has been through some um, some of those conversations and and uh, with people who are at the at the what they feel is the end of their life, you know that um, it's extremely challenging and and adds so much weight to to the shoulders however you know i think you you articulated it way better than than i ever could but you know that constant being available and being supportive can only work if you too have your own you know for lack of a better way to put it is is you know have at least some of the shit together to be able to be grounded to to be able to understand that this is a part of their journey that they have somehow subconsciously chosen to involve you in that and uh, and allow you into their space, which is you know is you know part of the the processing that I've gone through over the, over the years in this space is is that that's that's not necessarily a burden. That's if anything, it's a privilege to be you know even subconsciously be accepted into someone's darkest moments into their cave with the dragon to be able to um you know just hey can you can you just walk with me just this little bit down down this path um you know if it doesn't if it doesn't continue because they they find another way then you know that's that's fine too it's it's their journey and uh you know and for what we do in, inside the australian dads network is is definitely about you know acknowledging that open space but also that we're here to to walk with the journey with you um but it's your path to, to tread you know and sometimes you know with the the community that we've got where there's you know there's, we've got great granddads in there we've got granddads with you know the oldest guy is 74 years of age um wow. i say it all the time keith from kalgoorlie he's, <laughs> he's he's a he's a legend he's in he's in the men's uh men's mental health space as well still supporting guys still working hard um you know the bonus of having those crew around you and you know you do a lot of this stuff around the campfires and supporting community is is that you know some of those people that have been down there and this is this is the the way that i try to put it anyway is that they're not going to they're not going to clear the path for you they're not going to be the people to walk on that path in front of you and and whatnot but they can point out beside you some of those obstacles and maybe give you some tips and strategies on how to maybe get around that rock or you know what has worked for them but at the end of the day it's your choice it's your choice to 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 take the advice and and work and walk around the rock or do something different um but at at the end of the day it's yours it's your path and um and yeah so that's i suppose just a little aside to 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 that conversation but you, you raise a great point though Liam and that like Keith from Kalgoorlie is the, the consummate elder mm-hmm. um, and you know in a society which is elderless now because you don't become elder by virtue of age you become an elder by virtue of appointment by the tribe because of of the life experience that you have and the way you live it so then the wisdom but remembering the elder is that one step removed from the tribe too they're no longer in the warrior council and the chieftain's council they are one step removed so they have that objectivity and the beauty of someone like keith in your circle with that objectivity given from love obviously because you wouldn't speak to him without him you know having a big massive heart is is that that precision that an elder can speak with like calling it as it is and but it's the gift like an elder gives a gift they don't instruct an elder gives the gift 
And it's our then responsibility, as you're saying, to pick that gift up from the elder and 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 bring it into our life and and understand. And the only way you'll do it is by sealing the bond. I mean, the beautiful scene of Avatar is when when um, at, at the conclusion of Jake Sully's like initiation by Natiri. Interesting enough, he's initiated by the feminine. He's he's not not by um, um, Sute. He's not initiated by Sute. Matter of fact, he's in he's in competition with Sute is supposedly going to become the, the chief. So he gets initiated by the feminine and the feminine takes him through this journey of everything, you know, understanding life and only the way the feminine can do. And, but the final thing is he has to, to lasso the air climb and then she comes and pushes him off by saying, you've got the first flight seals the bond. So you've got to take this gift from the elder and then you've got to do your first flight with it. Because it's only in flying. If you remember the scene, he's charging down and the fight's not good, man. He's heading to the bottom. And it's like, and then he's fighting, he's fighting, he's fighting, he's fighting until he stops fighting. That's when all of a sudden it levels out. Yeah. And so that's the moment in time when you're fighting, 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 you stop fighting and all of a sudden things level out and the gift of the elder can settle. It's like, don't fight the gift, surrender to the gift. Because a gift has an energy from that wisdom, which has been lived before. Let that gift guide you. Let it just really sit in it. Last night um, with the the Maori group, I had the honour of um, having two elders like close the circle. And I don't speak Maori. It's not a tongue of mine. I know a couple of words. I just sat there, closed my eyes, and felt the power in these men's voice, these elders' voice. And it was moving me to tears just because not sadness, just deep honor, gratitude, respect that these men have. And I didn't need to understand a single word. I did not need because my consciousness is able to absorb the gift without word, you know, and, and my daughter, Abby, who's, who just works, um, she's off working at a, a retail outlet at the moment, was talking yesterday about a conversation she had with a Japanese lady that didn't involve English. And they had a beautiful time and actually it was the number one sale for the day because the lady just really appreciated Abby. And she said, you know, I was listening to a comedian the other day and the comedian was saying that you go over to Asia and you say one word, hello, to an Asian and they celebrate you. They laugh, they clap, they just go ballistic. They come to Australia, they cock up a whole sentence and you just go, hmm, you bloody Asian, can't even speak English. Why don't you go into your own country? Isn't it fascinating? Mm. The like paradox. Yeah, and so she she took this to heart, and she having this beautiful conversation with this Japanese lady, and and they they both walked out celebrating the experience. We don't necessarily need the words; we just need to have that time to surrender to the experience. Perfect. Uh, I have just uh, a couple more things that I just wanted to to put your way mm-hmm. for you to 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 dive into as deep as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I can't remember exactly where I heard this, um, but it's uh, it's basically it was titled the three givens of life: pain, uncertainty, mm. and constant work. Mm. My question is, do you agree? No, no, and yes, because the paradigm approach life will mean how I was exceed, receive pain, uncertainty, and constant work. I don't work. I follow my passion, and my passion is being of service, not in service. Um, which finds me uh, being in exchanges of, of focused uh, energy quite a lot. I don't do business because business just 
substitute the I and throw the Y in and you just get busyness. And it's like I was smiling at you before saying, you know, you must be a busy man, blah, 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 and making all these assumptions. I, I'm here because I value you and therefore this is my gift to the world. You actually allowing me to live my life purpose. And I am deeply grateful for you reaching out, contacting me again and saying, hey, can we connect? which is why I go to the point about tenacity and resolve. Tenacity and resolve, uh, done done from a place of the heart, just become a byproduct of being, um, which takes us beyond resilience. I go beyond resilience when I no longer have an adversary. So work doesn't become my adversary. It's not just the reason why I get coin. Now, I know you're over in the West and you're in a place where, you know, lots of statistics are actually covered up by the mines. I understand that, been there, done that. Um just because they're about the coin and that then transfers over to predominantly men. Um, and, but also the women that are involved in, in this industry as well. Um, and it becomes a mindset and goes into collective consciousness that their value is directly related to their doing. No, our value is in our being on our doing and in expressing our being, then the doing expresses this value. It's an expression of the value. It isn't the value itself. So pain happens like the four noble truths of Buddhism is really interesting. The first noble truth is that all life is suffering. When I first heard that, I said, I hate Buddhism. I don't want to do anything with it. So then I read the second noble truth. Suffering is a human condition. Really, I really don't like Buddhism. Buddhism sucks. And this suffering is called this word dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, I think it is. And it says dukkha is a human condition. It's caused by craving and aversion. This is the third noble truth. Dukkha is caused by attachment, by craving or aversion. And if you look at it, I can say pain is a given, but the suffering, which is caused by attachment to some story associated with the pain, means that it then is prolonged in the story gathers, uh, gathers momentum, gathers power within the conscious mind, subconscious mind, unconscious mind, and then all that comes, suddenly becomes my identity. Now, I've gone through the series of stages. I identified myself as the, the wounded soldier, the one in post-traumatic stress. Then I went through a stage of letting that go and becoming identified as the person who got over post-traumatic stress. And then I actually came to a place, and this was the, the funniest of the places, it was the transition between letting completely go of that post-traumatic stress story. And people ask me, do I agree with the disorder being on the end of it? I, I don't care because I don't do labels. A label can help for a moment, but as soon as you identify with the label, it now has you. And so if I identify with the pain, then it has me. If I witness the pain, then I can learn from it. And anyone actually knows, if you go down a sexuality uh, understanding, the pleasure and pain barrier, it's exceptionally fine. You look at the whole um, bondage, sadism, masochism, um, stream of sexuality and the underworld because it's often kept in the underworld. Um, and the reason why it's kept in the underworld is because it's, it's very, the energy is misunderstood and it's all in the shadow of the psyche. So the, but they know themselves like Japanese rope bondage and rope tying. They take the person in the pain, but it's the thing is in the pain, they're finding pleasure. It's a great podcast by a guy called Alan Watts. If you've ever followed Alan Watts, he's an amazing guy. He talks specifically about this pleasure and pain thing. There'd be a recommendation to the to the listeners. But there's a it's your it's your association with pain which causes it. And again, that's your paradigm. So if you've got a victim consciousness paradigm pain will rule well it's not just pain that will rule your life. Suffering will rule your life. Uncertainty is a fascinating thing. Once you, you look at uncertainty and you become comfortable in it, well, you see that chaos actually reigns and you start to salivate in the chaos. 
and you you become like this, the eye of the storm, the storms around you, and you gain stillness. If you want to practice this, people be flying in and out of Karatha in, in light planes. And so when the plane's buffeting all over by the thermals, go into meditation and just get really deeply still, and your whole body will be moving. But see if you can pl- find that point of stillness. And it's really fascinating what happens in that moment. Most uncertainty is a paradigm of disconnection, disconnection from something greater than self. You better stop there, otherwise we'll be talking forever. <laughs> That's a great question, Bella. I think it's it's uh, yeah, it's turning into a long form uh, podcast. We'll have to uh, we'll have to light a light a campfire in the yarn barn. Um, which, yeah, it was not a bad thing. Um, yeah, well, hey, I think that's. I think I think we've touched on a lot, but I think you know, it, like like what you've explained a number of times is that um, you know this conversation hasn't been disjointed. Everything has been connected in some in some way, um, and you know, and I said to this, I said to you this, uh, or said this to you earlier is is I don't necessarily have a script at all regarding um these these podcasts i really want to treat them as us just having a having a coffee or whatever and a chat and uh and and the reason why i do that is is because in order to have a good chat there needs to be that level of connection and needs to be that level of um trust in in the conversation and and it'll either it'll either go really well or or it won't (laughs) and i mean everyone else can be the judge of of how it went but i think it went um fantastic and and i i really um, I did have a blank page to start with, but now it's it's consumed with uh, it's consumed with notes. And you probably can't see that; it's all blurry. But it's consumed with plenty of notes, which I'll go back to as I, as I mentioned earlier as well. Um, I think you know one of the things that I would like to maybe leave this with, if if you if you could, is for you know our listeners are, are mostly dads. Um, you know, for those those dads out there that are, that have listened to the whole episode. Um, whether it's in one go or <laughs> across uh, the work week, but you know, for those guys where it's resonated, or at least something in this has resonated with them internally, where they can feel that through your words, like um, the way uh, I felt this uh, conversation, you know, deeper into the into the belly is, um, you know, if it's sitting with them, and now they're like, you know, so where do I go? Who do I speak to? Um, what do you think is that, you know, we've sort of covered a little bit of this, but, you know, where do, where do those, where do you sort of, where would you say to those guys to go? Where would you say to them to follow um, some of this moving forward um, so that they can take that next step? First question, are they boots and all into the dive in the deep end? Do they need to walk into the shallow end and then move down? Just own what it is. It's all good. Either way, it's good. The second one is, when you open up to receive help, the universe has this astounding way of presenting it there. So lots of people don't think there's any help. It's actually right there. we just got to open our eyes to it. And I know in that dark time, the eyes are the last thing that we want to open. But if we can just all of a sudden bring them open for a little bit, we're going to find, like Kirsty sat me down and said, there's this guy I want you to hear. He's a great Australian bloke. I think you'll resonate with him. She dragged my ass to the Sydney Masonic Centre for a three-day emotional intelligence workshop, and I was in the military. And she said, leave your baggage behind. And I said, what emotional behind? I have emotional baggage. And uh, I listened to this guy, and, and it was as if he'd been in my lounge room for the last 12 months. He resonated that much with me. And I knew in that moment that I needed to get help from him. So the first thing is to, to put our hands up. 
to have the courage. And this is the, is the biggest thing I understand. It's the biggest courageous thing we can do is to reach up and say, right, I'm not feeling great and I really would like some help. And, and then know that for some time we haven't been feeling great and we've been refusing help. So the first step might be wonky. We might not get the help that we need or that we want, or it might not come in the way we're expecting it. The thing is to just take that next step as well. The second step is almost more important than the first because it then demonstrates to you that you're actually committed to yourself. And so, cool, have a look. You know, this this forum, brilliant. You know, um, if you've got a local men's group, cool. It might be the first step. I actually personally believe that modern men's movement needs to die because they're harboring a lot of um, victim consciousness, but that's okay. It's the first step for, for a lot of people and it's a step that they need to go down. But reach out and have the courage to go, I want to now, I want to now experience something other than what I've got now. And I, I set the intention that I can allow myself to know what it is to be worthy enough to live a very good life. And, and in that moment, then go right and, and set that commitment to yourself. And now be open for the universe to respond because it will. And then when you see it, go with it. It's like that train of opportunity passing you by and you sat down on the, the bench seat on the, the station and you watch it go by and you went, bugger, you know, jump on this time. And sure, you might miss it, but then pick yourself up, get back off the tracks, get back on the platform, wait for the next one, get on that one. And it's and then this journey is one that I started for everyone else. I started for my daughters initially because I couldn't love my wife. Uh, we'd been married on that stage about 12 years or so. I, I, I couldn't love my wife. I just had too much shame and guilt. So I did it for my daughters. And then after about three months, I realized who I was actually doing it for, and that was myself. And from that moment on, the commitments weren't to them, but they initially needed to be to them because I just had such a low opinion of my own self-worth. But then it started to shift and I started to realize, cool, I'll just do it for myself one step, one step one step. And I started to see the effect it had on everyone else around me. And so that level of self-commitment, try a psychologist. If it doesn't work with you, reach out. There's so many stuff online. Just Google um, men's work, whatever. Con out loud, just link up with or follow my stuff. I throw a lot of stuff on on Facebook, just talking about these different aspects. James Greenshields on Facebook, just follow it. But there's, there's so many people out there that are, that are now rising out of the darkness and actually shining the light. Just set the intention and take that second step so that you can keep going. Awesome. That alone will help a bunch of people and uh, and definitely agree with following your work online. Um, is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't asked? That's the last question. <laughs> no, mate. No. You've asked everything. Questions have been awesome. I've actually really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it and, and as have I. Um, yeah, thanks, mate. Um, I really appreciate your time. I'm grateful for the opportunity to listen. Um, I'm, uh, I've learnt a bunch, um, and and I feel like I'm probably going to end up reaching out to you and asking you more questions after this as well, in some in some form or another. Um, I that's that's one thing I suppose is that people listen to podcasts and they have questions and they don't do anything about it. My name is James Greenshields. You can find me on Facebook. You can find my website, jamesgreenshields.com. Ask the question. Like if if Liam's put this out here uh, because of, you know, his big heart and what he's doing for you guys. So um, 
the one of the easiest things you can do is you've got a question is to reach out to either of us. And, and that's the way that questions start to be answered. Matter of fact, that could be your first step. It could just be having the courage to go, oh, I just heard this podcast. I wonder what, if I've got a question of either of these guys, maybe I'll just reach out and ask and hold the cow. Just watch how the universe supports you. 100%. 100%. Awesome. Thanks, James. Appreciate Much your time. Fun. And um, yeah, we'll talk again soon, no doubt. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Bye. Bye.